All right. Okay. So today, hopefully we'll finish with these few words that we've spent two classes on already. What? I'm running out of room to take notes. Well, fortunately, you, you can have put sticky paper. notes on top sticky notes. But then, but then you cover the words at the top. Oh, you're covering the Hebrew. I can't read Hebrew, so I covered the Hebrew. Well, you should put that over there. That motivate you to learn Hebrew. Oh, or you should get day. a piece of paper. Okay. <laughs> I don't like paper. We also have those. This is more this fun. Is paper. Okay. You surely should have gotten a bigger Tanya. That's, that, that's, that's the solution. She got one of those supersized Tanyas. <laughs> that exists. I'll just drag yeah, it in like, the class. No, she should be riding in the, in the board. Okay. okay. A4. So we're briefly going to summarize. The Kabbalists say God has no definable essence. That's why he's described as Ein Sof, because the definable essence limits you. You hear the word define, finite, related words? And Chassidus, wait, 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 However, if God is going to relate to the world in some kind of tangible way, then there has to be some bridge, some means by which that happens. Those are known as the spheros. And there is a kind of an emanation, a flow of godliness, of God's being, slash energy, slash light, all sorts of interesting, you know, symbolic words um, that present God in some sort of a concrete or specific way that allows God to interact and relate to the world. Now, a classic analogy for this idea um, from uh, Menachem Verkanti was that the same way the fingers of a person are completely responsive to their will and spirit, their desire, but they're also physical, thus allowing interaction with the physical world, so too the spheros are, so to speak, like fingers, that they are responsive to the will. We're going to bracket how the Ein Sof can have a will. The will and desire of the Ein Sof, but they, unlike the Ein Sof, are concrete and defined things, thus they can interact and um, relate to the world. And the simple analogy we would say is like this, is that there is a sphera of kindness known as chesed, which does the rewarding, and then there would be a sphera of judgment known as gavur that does the punishing, both responsive to the will of God, but the distinction between reward and punishment isn't something that you can attribute back to the Ein Sof itself, it's something that exists on the level of the spheres. Like, the difference between striking one key on a piano and another key on a piano is something that happens in the muscle memory of the fingers, not that something really takes place in the person's passion for that piece of music. The problem with all that is we've created some detachment between the Ein Sof, between God himself, and the individual and what's happening with them. And a basic premise in Judaism is that God is personally invested in the individual goings-on of people, right? We see this, right, that Hashem is going to reward and punish people not just on the collective basis, but individual basis, what's going on with each person matters. The Bashantav extends that beyond people, topic for another time. So therefore, Ramosha Cardavero, in his famous work, The Pardes, where he tries to synthesize all the different explanations of Kabbalah that have been since the time of the Talmudic sages until his time, just in time for the result to come along and revolutionize everything right after him. 
he objects to this explanation, or not, and doesn't throw it out, but he modifies it, he alters it in such a way that you end up getting something that sounds very similar to the Rambam, where the Rambam said that Hashem does have a defined essence. And, and that's what we're going to do today. How do we tweak our understanding of the spheros and then end up with something that makes it that the sage of the Kabbalah will end up agreeing or conceding with what the Rambam said? That's the goal for today's class. Okay? okay. So, I'm not going to talk about Spheris or God or the Ein Sof for a while. Why am I not going to do that? Because that's hard to understand. We're going to only talk about metaphors and analogies, and only at the end will I tell you what that means. We're going to focus on two analogies, and the goal here is to see how these analogies are similar. Are there going to be differences between these analogies? Yeah. Yes, but our goal is to see... Similarity. Once we fully or sufficiently understand the similarities between these analogies, we're then going to abstract it, apply it back to the Ain Sof and the Spheris, and then hopefully we'll still have time to finish everything. Okay? Okay. Now, a word about the first analogy. The first analogy that we're going to deal with light. If you've ever studied optics, please erase that from your mind. We are going to talk about light as is experienced by people in everyday sense. Okay? When was the last time you spoke about wavelengths and light? High school, right? Because in your everyday experience, you don't experience or relate to light as different frequencies and wavelengths, right? You, all right so we're going to talk about light as is experienced by everyday people in everyday circumstances. That's the analogy. Okay? If you want the fancy words for this, we're going to talk about the phenomenological existence of light rather than the scientific concept of light. I don't know how to spell that. I don't know how to spell it either. (laughs) Okay. So, so we have something called white light, but as we all know, white light isn't actually white. Right? We don't don't call it light. It's it's like light. It's not a particular color. It's just... It's not clear. Because like a glass is clear. You can see through glass. It's not white. It's kind of like... it doesn't, it's, it's colorless, but it illuminates all the colors and, you know, light. Okay. Now, if you take light and you put it through a colored glass, let's say a red glass, right, then the light that shines through the other side of the glass is red. If you put it through a green la- glass, then the light that shines the other side is green. Yeah? Make sense? Okay. So, what is happening... It's actually, what, what's, what's funny? What is this? That's a war plane. Yeah, that's... That's, that's, that's a war that's plane that's either coming back or going out yeah, to do something. Um, freaky. Yeah. I, I don't know if you realize this, but we are in the middle of a non-unofficial war right now. Yeah. Okay, and we're always in the middle of an unofficial war. It's just become a little more hot. Yeah, it's always in the middle of an unofficial war here. Okay. Okay. Now, now, so what is the, what is happening between the glass and the light? Okay. Well, the light stays light, right? The light didn't become something else. At the end of the day, on the other side of the glass, what you're seeing is the light. You're not seeing the glass, right? Mm. The good way to see this is that you have the light source, say you have the sun coming through a stained glass window, right? On the floor in the room, you see 
a pattern of light that looks like the window, but that's a pattern of light, right? That's not the glass, you're seeing the light. So light goes through the glass, the light was before the glass, light's after the glass, the light goes through the glass. What you're seeing is the light. On the other hand, something happened to the light. What happened to the light? Perceive it depending on like, what? The lens if you, what's it? Depending on what? Like you perceive the color of it based on what gloss you use. The color of the actual light never really changed. It's just what do you mean the color of light? I mean, you go convince my seven-year-old that the color of the light didn't change, right? Well, it changed like how you perceive it. What do you mean it changed how you perceive? Is it red light or is it not red light? It's red light because of. That's right. It's red light because of the glass. So what did the glass do to the light? Made it red. It made the light made the light red, right? But it didn't change the source of the light. That's true. That's true. It just changed your perception of it. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to differentiate something because this is very, very important. Okay. If I take a picture, okay. Um, I can do things. You know, let's say, let's say, I mean, everyone's seen optical illusions, right? You can do things to change how you perceive the same thing, right? So you can take a picture of a, something with a particular color, put a different color next to it, and all of a sudden the contrast makes it appear different, right? You know what I'm talking about? Okay. That's not what's happening here. Right? It's not, it's not, I'm, like, it, this is the, this light, I mean, is this an optical illusion in my head? Or is the light, like once the light goes through the piece of red glass from then on out, no. that light red. is red. It's not green, it's not blue, it's not clear. It's just, it's red light. In fact, you wanna hear something really interesting? If you make a, if the red, if the light goes through and it's red, and then you put like a blue glass in front of it, what happens? It's purple. No. It gets trapped. The glass looks purple. What? The glass is next to the red light shining on the floor. Actually, let's not use purple, because purple is a weird thing with your eyes. Let's use, if you have like red and say the green, that'll be better. What happens? It actually, it, what actually happens is that the, re- the red light coming through, right, so, so the red glass lets what kind of light through? Red, and the green glass lets what kind of light through? Green. But if there's red light coming out of the red glass and then it hits the green, is that red? That's not green light. So what happens? It just blocks it. Now, depending on the material you're using and how green it is and how red it is, it won't necessarily block it totally. So there's a weird thing. The red glass lets red light through. The red glass turns regular light into red light. The green glass lets green light through. The green glass turns regular light into green light. But once the light is red, then the green glass won't let it through. And if you reverse the order, the same thing. It actually does, does something. Now, again, you can explain this with optics and wavelengths, and, but that's beside the point. What I'm saying is you have a thing, and for all intents and purposes, in a weird kind of way, I don't, you don't think about it this way, but it's kind of like you painted the light. Like once the light goes through the red glass from then on, it's red. And it only does things the red light can do. Now, you're right. On the other side, it doesn't, there's no feedback back to the right. It doesn't change the light, on, light coming from the sun or from whatever the source is, okay? That's because it hasn't passed through it yet. That's because it hasn't passed yeah. through it yet. So what is, the, what, is the, what is the doing? It's changing the color of the light, but what you're seeing is the light, right? That's why if you, I mean, to have this like, 
um, you know, events where they have spotlights of different colors. Gobos. All, I don't know what a gobo is. <laughs> it's like for what did you say? So, but what they, but the, what they usually have is they have a standard white light yeah, and then they put some sort of layer on top. A plastic sheet over, right? It does the same thing, right? And so what it does is it changes the color of the light. Right? But you're not seeing, right? But then what's shining up in the air is not the plastic sheet. What's shining up in the air is the light. So now you have to think of the light in two senses. There's the light in it of itself, which is white, clear, whatever you want to call it, right? But then there's the light once it has been affected by the glass or the plastic, whatever it is, and now it's colored. Is that clear? Right? It's like the level of sophistication of like a seven-year-old. This is not supposed to be so complicated. Okay. That's good? Yeah. Okay. Now we're going to do the hard analogy. That was the easy analogy. We do the easy analogy because it grounds us. I'm going to do the hard analogy. Okay. We're going to start with seeing. That's going to be the first thing we're going to do, seeing. Okay? Now, I'm going to tell you how seeing works, and you tell me what's wrong with my explanation. And if you can't figure it out, then that's fine. Okay. So... The thing has some sort of an appearance and reflects off some light, yeah? That light then enters the person's eye and hopefully that has a lens to focus light. If not, you have these thingies to help. And then the focus light hits the back of the eye. The back of the eye is photoreceptive, meaning it, depending on what light hits what, um, what cells in the eye, creates different chemical reactions. Those chemical reactions then send electrochemical signals through a nerve to the back of your brain. Yeah, so far so good? Mm -hmm. Then the back of your brain processes, right, those signals. And then as a result of that, you see. Anything wrong with my explanation? Yeah. What? The processing is the seeing. When it enters your eye, that's when you see it. The processing is you recognizing what's entering your eye. Well, no, that's not true because unfortunately, chas v'shalom, if the optic nerve is cut between the eye and the back of the brain, people go blind. And there are people that are like that and they can't see. In other words, the seeing doesn't take place when the, when the, when the image hits the eye. The seeing takes place... When your brain recognizes. Right, in other words, you have to think of the brain eye as a whole complete system. Actually, what's really weird is that when fetuses develop, the, brain, the eyes only develop out of the brain. The retina is part of the brain. Yeah, it's like an extension of the brain. There's like, oh. the, your brain has these two little tendrils, which are really the back of your eyes. So, yeah. Okay, I take the L. Okay. Don't know if that's what you're going for. Take the L. But when it hits the like, back of your eye, you don't actually, like, you don't see this, you see it upside down. Yes. Okay. I disagree. You don't, you don't see it upside down. You see it right side up. Well, but it, like, it... That's right. This is, what, right this is why, down. again, we have to say is the when image is... You're right. The image is projected upside down in the back of the eye, but the, the seeing is not when it hits the back of the eye. The seeing is... Once it happens after the processing brain. Same issue. Right? I, the seeing does... Like, like, the, like if the image is... If, if something has an appearance and doesn't hit my eye, there's no seeing. If it hits my eye... 
and there's and, and there's no connection between you know if there's something blocking the front of my eye to the back of my eye. There's no seeing. If it hits the back of my eye and there's something disconnecting the back of my eye to my brain, there's also no seeing, right? So the seeing doesn't occur in the eye. So you're right. The image is projected upside down in the eye, but you don't see it upside down. That's just not true. It's the thing that they tell you like when you're in middle school and it sounds cool and then gets you excited to pay more attention in biology or anatomy class. But it's not strictly speaking true. No one's seeing it upside down unless you turn your head upside down. But then the image is projected yeah. right side up. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, are you intentionally excluding the whole perception process? Yes. So explain, explain what that means, the whole perception process. Um, so when we see things, we don't... Um, we don't experience ourselves as seeing light, colors, and shapes. We, like, our most basic experience of quote-unquote seeing is actually perception because we're interpreting things. So, for instance, when I'm looking at Sylvie's water bottle, I actually see only a water bottle up until a certain point, and then there's a basket blocking it. But I see it as a whole object. I don't look at that and go like, oh my god, where's the bottom of the water bottle? <laughs> because I have this thing that like babies actually have from a very young age, it's like a developmental thing in perception, where even though something is occluding it, blocking it, I still assume that there's going to be a whole object behind it. So there's like a whole bunch of like unconscious... That was what I put in the processing thing, but there, there's something in what you said which was I was alluding to, but you're emphasizing a different part. Okay. Okay, let me explain to you. Your brain let me. the gaps. With the SUI? Here's the problem, okay? I'm gonna, sorry for being a little bit, um, you know, biological for a second. The lens of your eye is incapable of experiencing sight, correct? Okay, it doesn't see, okay? Now you can say, okay, fine, but it just, you know, it focuses things past you, right? The, the retina, it also doesn't see, right? We just spoke about, right? It doesn't see. Now, but the retina actually just absorbed the visual information and changes it into other kind of information. That information gets sent to the back of your brain and then your brain turns it into other kind of information. Okay, so what I've just described is what's called changing information into information. Okay, let me give you an example of what, what I mean. Let's say Google Translate was really good, theoretically, okay? And I give it a text in English, okay? And then I tell it to translate it into Japanese, okay? And I don't look at the translation. Nobody looks at the translation. I tell it to translate to Japanese. And then without anyone looking at that translation, I just copy that text back into Google Translate, tell it to translate that Japanese text into French. And again, without looking at the French translation, no one's read it, you then take that text and you, and you tell the... Um, Google Translate to translate it into Mongolian. Now, at the end of the day, after that whole process is finished, that text has only been understood in one language, which is English. Because when, when Google Translate translates it, is it actually experiencing the, the, the content of those words? No. The meaning of the, right? It's not. It simply, it simply has some kind of process by which it translates one set of information into another, right? Your eye does this amazing thing of translating visual information of wavelengths of light and turning it into electrochemical information. And your brain has this way of turning electrochemical information into other kinds of electrochemical information, which is quite fascinating. How does the electrochemical information become 
seeing. Like the, 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 the image that most people have without consciously realizing it is like there's a little somebody in, inside your brain who has like a little video screen and the image gets projected on the video screen. Like there's the, like in, there's some, inside your brain you are seeing what's going on, right? But if inside your brain you're seeing what's going on, you're just repeating the process all over again. This is a famous philosophical problem is that if all you're doing is turning one kind of information into other kind of information to other kind of information, you never get to perception itself. How does the information coming off this water bottle turn into someone experiencing blue? How does that happen? It's not in this lobe of the brain anymore. It's not in the vision lobe of the brain. So where is it? It's the frontal lobe that processes information and interprets it and then makes like goal-oriented decisions and whatever. Yeah, but, but see, but again, you just talked about one kind of information to another kind of information. I'm not talking about information. I'm talking about qualitative experience. Oh, qualitative experience. Right, because seeing in real life is qualitative. Red and blue, they're different. Right? This is one of the... This is why... One of, one of, the, one of the big problems is that if we're not careful with the words we use, we end up forgetting that we're talking about different concepts. When I read a text, reading a text does not mean I'm simply... I'm parsing sentences and processing information with the algorithm. I actually come to some kind of an awareness, right? When I see something, there's a what it is like to see red and what it is like to see green, what it is like to see blue. Those are, those are, those are qualitative things, okay? There's a fancy word for this in English called qualia. Okay, now you want to know the answer to this question? How does it work? Okay. So... This is known as the hard problem of consciousness, which is how do you take something which is not a qualitative experience and turn it into a qualitative experience? And the answer to that is nobody has any clue. Zero, none, like not even close. What you can do, we are very good, or getting much better, figuring out how you turn one kind of set of information into. Another set, how do you turn language into ones and zeros? How do you turn information encoded in French into information encoded in Japanese? How do you turn um, data information that's in, in, in light and turn that into you know, um, sound? You can, we can do all sorts of things. We can turn one kind of information to another kind of information. But the idea that that information is actually means something and is experienced in a certain way, how does that go about? How does that happen? If you think about it, all you're doing is turning one thing into another thing into another thing. Let me give you, let me give you an example. If you're listening, um, if, if you take a picture with a camera, does the camera see? No. Do microphones hear? No. They take visual data and turn it into electromagnetic data. Okay, that's nice, it's convenient. And speakers turn electromagnetic data into audio data. And screens turn electromagnetic data into visual data, right? That's great. But what point does seeing and hearing take place? I don't get what the issue is with changing from information to other information in this case. There's How no is that not seeing? Cause, cause that, cause, because seeing isn't seeing. And is, you, if you pay attention, whenever you speak about seeing or hearing, you're always positing that there is a somebody doing it. So there's someone who's having an experience of something. That's just not the raw information. Okay. Does a camera see? No, because how 
No, because what, what's, seeing what, also involves like the conscious. All right, th so that's conscious. exactly what I'm saying. Conscious. There's an awareness. There's an experience of it. Right, but that's that's like involuntary. It's just like happening in your brain. Well, mm. so that's just information going to information. No, this is this, 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 not information going into information. When you run the chain of information going into information, where's the last place you reach? In like say seeing or hearing the brain. That's what happens. So there's the information in sound waves or in light and then through the eyes or the ears and then the nerves and then back to the, and the brain, right? Mm -hmm. That's the last place where I see information being processed, right? So I make a chain of events. I go, you know, object, sound or light, ears or eyes, nerves, brain, seeing, hearing. All the steps between the object and the brain you have the same kind of thing happening, which is one kind of information is being translated into another kind of information. One set of data is being translated into another set of data. There's no point of an experience yet. Now, something happens, it gets to the brain, and all of a sudden, there's an experiencing of it that's qualitative, that things feel a certain way and, and, and are seen a certain way. You, the, what, you, the red is red and the blue is bluey. And Everyone experiences it differently, though. That's beside the Wait, point. That's, yeah. that's beside the point. I, so in fact, that leap, that gap between subjective, qualitative, first-person phenomena like sights and sounds versus objective, quantitative things like sound waves, light, ones and zeros on a computer, um, neurons firing versus not firing and all of that. And there's this big jump. Okay, now. Okay. Is it the case that if you start messing with your brain, it messes with your consciousness? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, 100%. Okay. So that could lead us to believe that the brain generates consciousness, correct? Okay. This is going to get a little bit tricky for a second. Is it true that if you start messing, you know, they used to have televisions, you used to have these things called antennas? Mm -hmm. Is it true if you start messing with the antenna, it affects the image being projected on the screen? Mm -hmm. Is that because the antenna is generating the image? No. no. In other words, we have to be very careful. Just because something is involved, there's a correlation between changing it and something else, doesn't actually mean it is the actual cause, the building block. So it could be that something magical happens in the brain that generates consciousness and creates consciousness, but it could also be that consciousness is not actually generated by the brain at all, and the brain is actually doing something else, right? The antenna isn't generating the television program you're watching. What is it doing? Channeling. It's channeling it, right? And therefore, if you mess with the antenna, it messes with the quality of what you're receiving. But it's being generated from somewhere else. Okay, yeah? So when you said there's like a little guy inside your brain who's looking at the screen onto which things are, right? So it sounds like we're saying that that little guy would then need the whole process over again. No, no, but it sounds like we're saying that that little guy who is, let's say, your consciousness, right? That's the little guy who's like, I see it. That guy is not seeing mechanically the way that we're talking about. We're talking about the mechanical process of, like, how does that... Right, that's exactly what I'm getting. So there's some sort of, like, spiritual rift there. Right, okay. And in, in, in the philosophy of science, this is known as the hard problem of consciousness. And it, it, the reason why it's called a hard problem is that easy problems are problems that you, like, at least have some idea of what to do. Like if I give you a math problem, you know you probably should use math to solve it, right? 
if I tell you, like, get it, we need to lift something from here to there, you know, that's probably involved some building materials and engineering. Even if you have no idea what, like, you at least have some direction, right? If I tell you, how do you turn fat and protein into subjective self-awareness? And the answer to that is people are like, I just know that if you poke the fat and protein, it does funny things to the consciousness, and the consciousness does funny things to the protein. But beyond that, we're kind of clueless. Okay. Now, this is not, this is, this is n- not meant to be a polemic of one particular point of view. I'm just giving you the point of view that Judaism subscribes to because that's one of the analogies. Consciousness does not come from the brain. The brain, for starters, is more like an antenna that picks up consciousness, although it's not really like that. I'll explain to you in a second what it's like. Consciousness is not created from anything physical. Consciousness comes from a highly different thing. If you want to call it spiritual, you can call it spiritual. I don't care what you call it. But consciousness is its own thing. Okay? Now, what is consciousness like? And the answer is, it's not like anything. What color is the white light? I see your hand, I'm ignoring it right now. What color is white light? I know we call it white, but what color is it really? Not really a color, right? Kind of colorless. Okay, what happens if you put the white light through a red glass? It becomes red. What happens if you put consciousness into a brain that has a visu- that ha- can process visual information, what does that brain do to consciousness? It shapes it, just like the light- glass shapes or colors the light. The brain gives shape or color or texture to consciousness and causes consciousness to be experienced in specific ways, which means. If you just had, for lack of words, the soul and its consciousness, you wouldn't, there would be no such thing as seeing or hearing. Well, what would it, be? it wouldn't be anything. It's like saying, what color is white light? And the answer is, it's not any color. But if you take that very same consciousness and then put it into a brain which, which processes visual and audio information, what does that brain do? with the information that it's processing, it shapes, it colors, it textures consciousness, and now consciousness is experienced as seeing things or hearing things. So what's actually happening in con- when you see and hear is actually very much like what's happening to the light. The light is not being generated by the red glass. The light is being generated by, say, the sun. What is the red glass doing? It's shaping the light. Giving it color, right? And in doing so, the light becomes much more perceptible, much more noticeable, right? Much more tangible. But it's giving shape and color to the light. What happens, what does a brain do to consciousness? It gives, it gives shape, it gives concrete experiences. First and foremost, they're sensory experiences of seeing and hearing. Which is why if you mess with the brain, are you gonna mess with your conscious experience? Yeah. It's like going back to the analogy of the light, right? If you have the red glass, right, and light is flowing through it, and all of a sudden you like, let's say it's red glass, let's say it's like red plastic film, and you like scratch off some of the red plastic film, now you're gonna have all of a sudden some of the red light is gonna be missing, right? Is that because the, the plastic film is the source of the red light? 
No, what it's doing is it's coloring, it's shaping, it's giving texture to the light. Okay? This is a kind of relationship that's very important to understand. You have one thing which is the source, but the source itself is formless, textureless, colorless, and therefore imperceptible. Oh, it radiates from the sources like that. But then there's something else which does what? It gives shape and color and texture to what radiates off the source. That's what happens with light and colored glass or film or whatever it is. That's also what happens, the way Jews understand, between the consciousness which radiates off of the soul and the physical brain. Which is why, is there a strict correlation between what you do to your brain and what you're going to experience? Sure. And you can get very specific that this part of the brain is associated with this kind of experience. Why? Because this part of the brain is shaping consciousness that way and that part of the brain is going to shape consciousness that way. But then the, the actual idea that it's something you experience, you perceive it, there's a qualitative thing. What is it like to see versus what is it like to hear? What is red like versus what is green like? What is, what is, what is, what is soft music feel like versus, versus loud music? Those qualitative distinctions are not... Are, are, are things that happen in consciousness. They're not things that actually exist in the physical brain. They're not things that exist in the eyes and the ears. They're not things that exist in the, in the wavelengths that are in, in the sound waves that are surrounding us. So what's happening is a joint effort of raw consciousness coming from the soul and something to shape it and texturize it and define it that's happening through the brain and this input from the world around it. What? To like understand your I want to I, I deal with this on a very simple level, which is that's why I pick sense perception, seeing first. Well, if we understand what's seeing, we're going to go another step deeper. But let's just make sure we have this clear, because this is already like a new way of thinking about things. Yeah? Could you say, if we have the idea that like a mom and a dad and God all are like three parents of a child, right? Mm-hmm. So could you say that like the, the, the two human parents create like the they create the brain like the channel thing mm. and then god supplies the consciousness that's actually what it says the, when it says there are three parts the, when it says there are three parts the gemara then continues and says the husband the father provides certain biological material the mother provides other biological material and god provides the soul and the basic context of that is soul is meaning source of consciousness okay. is that like I would say like this. It's not across the board, but many times when we use the soul and body as an analogy, that's the best way to think of it. But it's wrong to reduce the soul as the source of consciousness any more than it makes sense to say that all the sun is is a source of being able to see during the daytime, right? There's more going on in the sun than just that it provides light, right? So it is not fair to say the soul is merely the source of consciousness, but the source of consciousness is the soul. Let's set aside the fact that we have two souls and that complicates things. Yeah. Um, when is the soul put into the baby? Conception. But does that baby have consciousness? Well, the question, the answer is yes. How much is the how much is the body forming and shaping that consciousness? Very little. And remember, unformed, sha- and unformed, and unshaped consciousness doesn't feel like anything. Mm-hmm. Any more than like light, just on its own, right? Colorless light doesn't doesn't. Like, there's colorless light right here. It's like you don't, if it's, it lets you see other things and it can be shaped by like transparent films and, and glasses, but it itself, yeah. So, yes. It, it, what? Light is light. So consciousness is light. Yeah. Light is 
No, but we're saying that the qualitative experience of light itself is like unformed conscious in the sense that both are kind of inexperienceable in and of themselves, but then can be given form and shape so that you can experience them. Right? You can take the light that you can't see, put it through a red glass, all of a sudden you see, look, there's a red beam of light. You can take consciousness and put it through a developed brain. You're like, ooh, I'm seeing, ooh, I'm hearing. Right? But if you have an undeveloped brain, right, just like right after conception, <laughs> then yeah, the consciousness might be linked to that little piece of biological material, but it doesn't really affect it because it's, there's nothing developed yet. Right? It's like going through, going through clear glass. It doesn't really change the light in any way. Yes? Well, I said conception. Conception, they're not a baby yet. No, 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 no like conception. That once they're, one, say like a six-month-old baby. You, this is they have, they have, they have, even in utero. Babies can hear in utero and they can feel pain in utero. Right? But that's further along. The body's more developed. That's my point. Is The more the body is developed... still consciousness, even though they're not, it's not like a reflexive consciousness. Oh, right. That gets back into this idea. Right. All I'm talking about is pure, like, the pure sense of quality of perception. Right? The idea that you have more sophisticated things like your ability to be, o- be aware that you're being aware reflexive kind of that's a whole, that, that requires a whole new level development of the brain, right? That's a very complex part, right? So this part of the brain gives con- forms consciousness into experiences of seeing and hearing. This part of the brain forms consciousness into awareness of consciousness itself. The more sophisticated reshaping of consciousness. But if you strip it out of the brain, Consciousness doesn't, isn't, doesn't it, it, it's the stuff that experience is made out of, but it itself doesn't really have its own innate quality of experience, like light. Light can be given any color, but it itself is colorless. Yeah. For the TV with antenna example. Which is not perfect, because it doesn't really shape what you're receiving. It just causes, it either picks it up perfectly or distortion, right? The antenna is not, not really the best example. Right, except the antenna doesn't shape what you're seeing. It just, uh, it just makes it whether it's picking up it better or worse. So what's the consciousness in that? The, the program being broadcast. From another place. Right. Is it the signal or no? Yeah, you could say it's like the signal. I mean, I don't want to go too far into that analogy. I was using that analogy just to show you that just because messing, messing with something physically doesn't mean that thing is actually generating that phenomenon. But that's to say the con- that consciousness is outside your body. Right. Right? We speak about you know, your soul coming down. Right? What happens when a person dies? But then they're no longer conscious. Well, that depends because, and this is a topic for another time, but although your physical body you can't take with you, you might, there are other aspects that might have reshaped your consciousness that survived death. And so you can have, like, so to speak, a non-physical body. But while we're alive, where's... They'll talk about that later. It'll show up in Tanya. Maybe. Okay. Okay. So let's run through the similarities. What is light? What color is light? Colorless. 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 What color could light be? Any color. What does consciousness feel like? Nothing. What could consciousness, what could it feel like? Anything. Anything. What determines what color the light is? The glass. The glass. This vessel that goes in. What determines what consciousness is experienced as? The brain. The brain and everything that feeds into the brain, right? Yeah? Making sense? Mm-hmm. Okay, you see the similarities? Okay. Now, here's where it gets really weird. Okay. 
we can all agree that there's an experience of like seeing red, different experience of hearing, um, you know, opera. Those are different experiences. Okay, is knowing an experience? Is there something that it's like to really know and know back what I spoke about last week, knowing, like really, truly knowing fundamental metaphysical, right? there, there is an, that is a kind of experience. It's quite a profound, lofty, deep experience, but it's a kind of experience, right? So if we're gonna use the same thing, how does knowledge come about then? If knowledge is a kind of an experience, like seeing and hearing, then how does it come about? What is, how does knowledge generate it? Well, you have the raw conscious energy of the soul being given shape by the brain. So now is the brain the one that's knowing or is the soul the one that's knowing? The soul is the one that's knowing. But what is defining its knowing? The brain, because if you took the soul out of the brain, just like the soul out of the brain doesn't see, it doesn't, it doesn't have any quality of experience, it also doesn't. Doesn't have knowledge. So once you, un- once you think about it this way, there's all sorts of, if anything can be construed as subjective, meaning it's, it's happening to someone in their, from their experience, within their point of view, within their internal reality, then what's actually happening is the raw, undifferentiated consciousness of their soul is being shaped and given texture by the influences of the body, specifically the brain. That means everything about you is really a combination of the soul and the brain. Let's run through them. Seeing, seeing we did already, right? The quality of seeing is a, is a conscious experience, but the fact that it's seeing as opposed to hearing, the fact of what you're seeing, that's all determined by the brain and the inputs it's receiving from the eyes. Hearing, the same thing. Knowledge, it's a more complicated process. And so in this view, is there anything you can say, anything, any, any identifiable thing about yourself that you can really say, this is my body versus this is my soul? You mean brain The brain is the nexus of the body. It gets into question whether the brain could really be taken out of the body and still work. Yeah, but you realize that the point at which you can cut off your fingers is also the point you have no subjective experience of them, right? In other words, like the fingernails that get cut off, you don't feel anything? Okay, so parts of you that are part of your subjective reality, are they your body, are they your soul, or are they a synthesis of the two? They're synthesis, but it's not like you take body and soul and mix them together. It's a very specific relationship. The soul is the undifferentiated, raw energy of consciousness, and the body is what gives it shape and texture and defines those experiences. What? No. Thinking is, a, thinking is, 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 is a more sophisticated form of consciousness of, than seeing and hearing, but it is less than knowledge. Thinking is more like internal dialogue. Being aware that you are aware of things. Whereas knowledge means, like we spoke about before, you actually you know, merge your consciousness with some sort of external truth, and that's like much more profound. Okay. So, I'm gonna give now a silly example. If you have a piece of Play-Doh and you stamp it with some sort of mold, let's say the mold is in a star shape, then what happens to the Play-Doh? It's a star. It's shaped like a star. Where did the star shape come from? 
but it's the Play-Doh itself that's shaped as a mold, shaped as a star, right? Okay. Now that analogy is not a great analogy for reasons I don't want to get into. That's why we don't use that analogy. The better analogy is the colorless light going through the colored glass becomes colored by the glass. The simple, pure, inexperienceable, conscious energy of the soul becomes defined conscious experiences through the body, specifically the focal point being the brain. Yeah. Yes. You're noticing how I'm saying something that sounds very similar to the Rambam? Because that was an old explanation of the Rambam. Yes. Okay, so now, now we'll talk about the Ain Sof. What is the Ain Sof like? Like nothing. Well, we have analogies for, in relative limited context, what we mean by like nothing. Like the color of light or what pure consciousness is like. Now, just because light is not like anything, light can be colored, right? If the light goes through a red glass, the light becomes. If the light goes through a green glass, it becomes. If the light goes, if the, if the consciousness goes into a, uh, into a brain which is processing visual information, then consciousness sees. If it goes into a brain processing audio information, then it hears. If it goes into a brain processing metaphysical stuff, however that works, which we're not gonna worry about that right now, then what happens? Then the consciousness knows. Okay, well, what if the Ein Sof goes into something which gives the Ein Sof shape, gives the Ein Sof form? So then the Ein Sof has a shape or a form. So the way, would say, the, way, the way we would say it is that there is this thing called the Sphera of Chachma, the Sphera of Knowledge, the Sphera of Wisdom, and what happens when the Ein Sof goes into the sphere of wisdom or the sphere of knowledge? The sphere of wisdom shapes the Ein Sof and makes it wise. Just like, what does your brain do to your consciousness? It gives it defined experiences. What does the light, the glass do to the light? It gives it a specific color. What does the sphere of Chachma, sphere of wisdom, of knowledge do to the Ein Sof? It makes it have the form of knowledge. Now, knowledge means that there's an essence of what something is. But now it's not, right? But remember, this is very, very critical. The, The glass makes the light have color. The body makes the consciousness have specific experiences, right? So that means the sphere of Chachma is making the Ein Sof itself be Chachma like. Chachma meaning Knowledge, chacham meaning wisdom, meaning chacham meaning that there's a defined essence. So does God have an essence? And the answer is, well, no, but yes. At what stage? At what stage? The Ein Sof itself doesn't, is not, has no essence, but if the Ein Sof is shining through chachma, and chachma is all about essences, it's by the way, the word ma is right even there in the word chachma. Right? The word ma, chachma, okay. Ma means essence, we spoke about before. We'll learn that in chapter two, three. Chapter three gets into what the, what the, the first half of the word means. So if there's this sphere of essence and the Ein Sof shines through the sphere of essence, then what does the Ein Sof become? It becomes essence-like. But it can't be something else when it's that. Okay, but now, now what kind of essence is like? It's not the essence of a tree or the essence of a dog. It's what the Ram would describe as the essence of God. which is not an essence that we can really directly grasp. But 
it still is a defined essence. Doesn't mean shining through that essence. Ah, this is the problem going back to Kabbalah. I have no idea. But I do know that glass shines through so light sorry, glass doesn't shine through. Light shines through glass, and if it shines through red glass, then it's right. Right. and green glass. Green. And shine through glass that's in the shape of a knight in shining armor rescuing a damsel in distress, then the light looks like armor rescuing a damsel in distress, right? And I know that consciousness this is that isn't like anything. But consciousness shining through or radiating through a healthy brain that has an image in front of open eyes will experience seeing. And healthy brain with ears with stuff happening will experience hearing. And then, you know, the brain is more complex, it'll experience other kinds of experiences all the way up to the most profound experience, which is known as knowledge. Okay? So what happens if you take... And I don't know what the Ainsof is, and I don't know what the... the the sphere of ultimate essences. But that's what Chachm is. It's the sphere of ultimate essence. The essence of all essences. What the Rabbim talks about, God being. What happens if the Ein Sof shines through that? Now the Ein Sof has become the ultimate essence. But not because it is the ultimate essence, but because the sphere is giving it that shape, that form, that texture. So the difference between becoming something and being something? Right. So in other words, what the, what the Ramak says, that the Kabbalists say is, God is not what the Rambam says, but God becomes what the Rambam says. But who says that? The Ramak. That is true. Well, that's exactly the Kabbalist point, is that Essence for you is like the ultimate stop of, the, of, of your metaphysical chart. But if you're Ain Sof, essence is more like a quality. Right? Which is, I, I grant you, this is hard to understand. The only thing we can analogize saying is like this. We're going to treat essence to God as like qualities of color or particular kinds of experiences are to light. How? I don't know. Because I'm not a Kabbalist. Like, I, 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 th- th- there is a point where... What, what else is there besides for essence? Like, what else is the the Kabbalist would say, that Kabbalist was saying, that's like your tongue asking, what else is there aside from taste and texture? What is this thing you call of light? Because it's not, your, your tongue doesn't experience sight, your eyes don't experience taste, and your mind doesn't experience beyond essence. So it's stuck. But that's a problem of our minds. It's not a, it's not a real problem. That's what makes Kabbalists transcendent. I, 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 there's no way we're going to get around that problem, right? Our minds are fundamentally within things. Things are what they are. We can debate what they are. We can analyze what they are. We can talk about how they change from one thing to another. But there is this fundamental thing. Something is whatever it is. And the Kabbalists are saying, well, that's how your mind works. But that doesn't mean that's true of God. And therefore, being a something, whatever a something is, is for God a superficial quality like color is to light or a particular kind of experience such as seeing, hearing, or even knowing is to the raw consciousness of the soul. And yeah, what are the spheres doing? They're shaping the Ein Sof and giving it that. So now, going back to our problem, what, is, the, is the sphere of kindness rewarding you? No. The sphere of kindness is doing what? It's making the Ein Sof itself be kind. And what is the sphere of Gvura doing? It's not punishing people. What is it doing? It's making the Ein Sof itself judgmental. 
Well, so this is why this is why the analogy of the light is very helpful, right? The light is only the color in as much as it goes through the glass, right? But the light as it comes from its source, source still remains colorless. So God at his source is not good, kind, judgmental. Or in essence. Uh-huh. So from our perspective, the highest level is off the same stuff, but really there's just so much more. Well, I, this depends what you mean by Atzo Saint Sof, and so I don't want to answer your question. Because no. <laughs> it depends. Like, I'm just explaining to you the Ramak. Siddhisa makes it much more involved. It's just the Ramak. So I'm going to use the board to make sure we have clarity. Do we have a marker? Yes. Uh, does the light, before it goes through the red glass, have the potential to be red? Oh, the answer clearly, in this analogy, clearly has to be yes. So the... So inside has the potential to be an essence and all those stuff. That's right. That so is key thing the to glass. point out. So just, has uh, just helps the light express itself. Wait, what is Okay, I, I'm gonna, I, I want to I get to that now the at, on the board, okay? So, okay. Let's go through, I'm going to go through one glass, It's red. Gives you have the sun. The glass just gives the round shape. You have the light. You have the red glass. And then you have red light. Okay? Everyone understands the chain of events here? Mm-hmm. The sun is the source. What's radiating off of is light. Light has no color. But, as you pointed out, it has the potential to be colored. It goes through the red glass. The red glass brings out the potential of light to be red. And now the light itself is red. But it's only red in as much as it's gone through the glass. As it comes from the source, it is still colorless. Good? Then you have soul. Uh, I can't spell. Consciousness. And what is consciousness like? Nothing. It's not like anything, but what could it be like? It could be any experience. And so then we'll just use the following example. It goes through the eye brain setup. And then what do you have on the other hand? You have seeing, right? And then you could put that different parts of the brain body relationship and get different experiences, right? But the same thing. Seeing is a defined conscious experience, but the shape of it is being determined by the eye brain. And so the consciousness is seeing it as much as it goes through the eye brain, but as it comes from the soul, it's still pure and undifferentiated. But that pure and undifferentiated consciousness has the potential to be shaped to see it. Okay? So then we do... Then we do this. We do... The Ain Sof. Then what comes out is... The light. And then we're going to put here, we're going to put here, Chachma, the sphere of Chachma. And the sphere of Chachma is the sphere of like ultimate essence, the essence of all good, inherently good and proper being, blah, blah, blah. And what comes out of that is the God of the Ramadan. Because just like over here, the final product is the light, right? 
Over here, the final product is a conscious experience, right? So over here, it's not Chachma, but the light of the Ein Sof. But the light of the Ein Sof has now been shaped by the Chachma. And so now you have a God, which sounds very much like Ramam. He has some sort of, he, he has this defined essence of what he is, and then from that, everything else flows. What's the light of the Ein Ah, so you notice that over here we had the differentiation between the source and the light, because it's the light that's being reshaped, but not the source. Mm -hmm. And we did that over here, we spoke about the soul being the source of consciousness, but the consciousness flows or shines through the eye brain. So there, well then, by the same logic, we have to differentiate between the Ein Sof, which would be the pure being of God, and then the Ein Sof, which is the kind of like the radiated emanation experience of his so how being. How could there be that differentiation? That also needs to be explained. So I'm just, uh, Egypt, there's a, you also, where did the Chachma come from, right? Like, the, this came from your parents and the outside world, and this came from a glassmaker, right? I mean, there's a lot of stuff that needs to be explained. It's not a complete understanding. All this is showing you is our problems with that we wanted the, 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 the knowing, the rewarding, the punishment to be, to be something about God, not something he created that does things on his behalf. And so the solution to that is it's not like fingers. Fingers are fingers reshaping your spirit, but they're just responding to your spirit. Right? But your eyes are actually reshaping your spirit, reshaping your consciousness. So is your brain. So is your heart rate. All those things change how you experience reality. And so the, the, the Ramak says that the spheres are more like glass giving color to light. Like the limbs reshaping the conscious experience. This that radiates off the body. So the sphere of Chachmah is giving this defined essence way of being, which I don't know what that is, to the Ain't Sof. So now, in as much as this is true, can we then say that this essence is then transmitted onto your soul? So the way it would work like this. There's the Ain't Sof. There's some sort of express, you know, experience radiating off in like the light to the sun, conscious to the soul. It's then given shape by this thing called Chachmah. And now the Ein Sof is Chochmah. The Ein Sof has kind of an essence, at least is how it's experienced, how it's manifested. And then that essence is then copied. It's the godly soul. So then what is the godly soul? The godly soul is the son or, this, or a child. Right? Because this is the father, this is the child. That's way back there, right? where the idea of the father and child is the father is giving over their essence and it's copied into the child. Mm -hmm. But how does God have an essence? The answer is, there's some sort of expression of his being that's given shape by the sphere such that in that sense he has a defined essence of what he is and that's what's given over to the Jew. That's what defines the Jewish soul. And so, you could speak about everything that what the Ramadan says and still ultimately agree that Hashem is, uh, has no definable essence whatsoever. Yeah. That was what the Rambam, that's what the Altar meant in those eight words in Hebrew or 11 words in English. But it doesn't it, 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 it There's a lot of loose ends that need to be tied up. Yeah. Yeah. Did the Rambam, if he drew this chart for the Rambam, would he say, like, everything above God of the Rambam is ridiculous? And so here's the answer to that question. I'm biased because I'm a Lubavitcher. So you're going to get the Lubavitcher to answer this. The last chance of view of this is that it depends on who the Rambam was talking to. If the Rambam thought you would not misuse this information, he would say, yes, I agree with that. 
But if the Rambam suspected that you wouldn't appreciate the nuances and sophistication of this, and you would end up walking away with thinking, okay, so what you really mean to say is like, God has this whole bunch of layers, and God has made different parts, and so something that I'm afraid you're going to turn into some sort of like weird kind of pagan thing, so then I'm just going to deny it. And you can see this, that the Rambam, the Rambam, the Rambam is a big believer in being nice to people. And one thing about being nice to people is that he feels that if you give people things that they're going to misuse, you're setting them up to fail. And so the Rambam does not believe in democratization of knowledge. Because if you tell somebody something they don't know how to handle, it will mess them up. So Rambam says, even simple, says, you can't go around telling people that God doesn't really have a physical body. Because some people, when they hear God doesn't have a physical body, what do they conclude? God doesn't exist. So it's better that they are under the impression of God. And he says, my proof is that's what Hashem does in the Chumash. So the, and then the Rambam is very, the Rambam is, believes that there's a hierarchy of people's ability to handle things. And one of the interesting things is that all the Kabbalists really started explaining stuff once the Rambam had kind of set the ground rules of the discussion. Um, so the Rambam is a believer in telling children that your mitzvahs make Hashem happy? Yes. And he's also a believer in telling, you know, the, the, telling, telling, you know, someone who, who, who has a knack for metaphysics to understand why that's ridiculous, and that those are not contradictory, and that you should understand why it's not ridiculous. That what's not contradictory? Telling a child that mitzvahs make Hashem happy and he smiles, and at the same time, a, a more profound person understands that that doesn't make any sense, because truth cannot always be conveyed explicitly. And so you have to, you know, I'll give you a simple this example. Because we're all pretty comfortable with the idea that Hashem doesn't have a body. If I told you that Hashem doesn't love you, what do most people hear? He doesn't care. He doesn't care about you. He's indifferent, right? So the Ram would say, well, if that's how the person's mind works, you tell them God loves them. Because if there's a choice between indifference and love, it's closer to love. If your mind is more sophisticated, you realize that there's a third option, well, then we can talk about how Hashem doesn't really love you. It's not really love. It's something else, blah, blah, blah. But most people's minds can't handle that, even nowadays. So what do we go around talking to people? But is it really love? Okay. So if you ask the Rambam, if you ask the Rambam, he would take a good hard look at you and say, Don't don't worry about what all those Kabbalist people are saying. It just confuses you. Just 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 focus on like, you know, you know, doing terror mitzvahs. But being that I'm chassid, not a strict follower of the Rambam, we incorporate the Rambam says in Kassidus. So if the Ron Ron was talking to you, he'd be like, good for you. I don't know. I'd like to think so. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to think so, but that could be my own self-delusion. Right? You never know. Okay. Well, he'd probably say it's better that you think this than anything else. Because yeah. okay. there's, there's, there's more to this story. Okay. So I realized... And this is the, again, I'm going to say this over and over again. Whatever we're using, we don't, I don't know what ain't so is. There's nothing what ain't so is. I don't know what ain't so is. I don't know what the light is. I don't really know why. Like, clearly, you have to differentiate between the light, which is being affected by the chachma, versus the ain't so stays unaffected like the sun. But I, I can understand the parallels, and it's all I can understand. I understand that something comes off of the sun that can be shaped by the red glass without affecting the sun. There's something that comes off of the ain't so, which is affected by the chachma without undermining the Ainsof being the Ainsof. I understand that the light of the sun, in as much as not in the red glass, is colorless. I know that the light of the Ainsof isn't Chachma light, in as much as not in the sphere of Chachma. I know that the red glass makes the light itself red. I know the Chachma makes the Ainsof, the light of the Ainsof itself, Chachma light. And once I have 
something godly with a defined essence, I basically now have what the Rambam was talking about. And now I can say that essence is then transmitted and copied to the godly soul. If you want a more profound analogy, use soul consciousness, body, specific experiences. Yeah? Okay, but the sun and the red light are unequivocally two different things. But if we say the Ain Sof and the God of the well, Rambam are two different things, that's heresy. No, they're not actually. The sun and the light, the way light is conceived of by all of the medieval thinkers, is not distinct from the sun, which is different than the modern physical conception. Yeah. I don't want to get into why that is. These are like so people who study Kabbalah like really want to understand like what is how does all this work in great detail? And how malleable it is it? Because then over here, if I like, scratch the red glass and put some green there, then it's gonna be red with a streak of green light, right? And so one of the interesting things that Kabbalah speaks about is that you can actually mess with this thing, with the spheres. Just like you can like mess with people's brains and their eyes, it changes the quality of it. You can mess with the spheres. And if you mess with the spheres, what does that do? It changes what God is in reality. Who could change the spheres? You can. <laughs> every time you do a mitzvah, you make the spheres, for lack of words, better. And every time you sin. Yeah. And so Kabbalists are really into being pious and religious because they have a totally different understanding of what happens when you do a mitzvah. When you do a mitzvah, you strengthen. I mean, it's. I, I didn't just do but there's a whole chart of the spheres, yeah? So here's like this. When you give tzedakah, the sphere works better, the chesed one. Okay? When you don't eat non kosher food, this sphere works better. But then when you sin, the opposite happens. So think about what happens if you, like, poke somebody, God forbid, in the, in the eye or scratch their brain. That's going to really mess with the effectiveness of the conscious. Yeah? So then. Whatever, whatever God is going to be in reality is going to be subject somewhat to the influences of our mitzvahs. And so that's, well, Kabbalah is not just like a theoretical discussion, it also starts speaking about like how important it is to make sure you do mitzvahs and not sin, because it doesn't just affect you and your life, it actually affects in what way, what is God in reality? Does it affect the ain't self? No, no. But it does affect God as he's part of reality. And so the Kabbalists say you can say that mitzvahs make God happy and various make God sad is not a joke. <laughs> it, it's actually very, very serious. Questions? Yeah. Why? Um, so can we take the Chachma and replace it with Chesed or... Yeah, yeah. But the reason I'm focusing on Chachma because it's the Chachma that's being copied into the God... It's the Chachma that is the thing that's being copied to make the godly soul. Or really not the Chachma, the Ein Sof is it's been reshaped by Chachma. But then would you say it's a different expression of like there's different, ten different charts with ten different spheres? It's, this is where Kabbalah gets more complicated. How... These analogies fail at certain points because they're, I mean, this way this analogy is not as good and this analogy is better. Because in this analogy, like, do you have one conscious experience or many? Many, many. Now, is it really you have many or are those many all integrated as a whole? So you have many integrated as a whole and, and they have various levels of subdivision and unification, right? Right, this is right. So, this is a much more accurate analogy. This is an easier analogy to understand. So if you want to like map out all the spheres, it's like mapping out the entire scope of all human conscious experience. 
Can you do that? Can you map out the entire scope of every possible human experience and how it all interacts with all other experiences? No. 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 So, and that's the analogy for what the spheres are doing. So they're mapping out all the spheres is a little bit ridiculous, right? Doesn't you can only generalize. Each sphere within itself has different, like not sphere, but yeah. different like. It's, th that's why, think of it more as a body. A body, it doesn't matter how you describe the body, you know, no level of analysis is going to be good enough because if you're too general, you miss the details. If you get too detailed, you miss the general. Right? The only good, perfect model of a body is another actual body. Right? So the only really perfect way to really understand the spheres themselves would be actually have some sort of awareness of the spheres, which would make you a true Kabbalist, not somebody like me just peddling off analogies. Okay. Yeah. Why are the true Kabbalists not out there like militantly? Like if they really believe that us doing that affects God in reality, like, does it affect well, God in reality? Or just, well, like, like, do our mitzvot affect their reality? Yes, because there's one God for everybody. So then, right, so then why are they not out here militantly forcing people to like do this? They're not. I haven't encountered. Are there just not enough capitalists? And I haven't gotten them. Well, <laughs> we always have to differentiate between our goals and our means, right? So if you have a Kabbalist, if I say the name of, I don't know, King David, he takes the quite literally. But he has the benefit of having an actual army at his disposal with swords. Right, okay. If you happen to be, I don't know, say the laboratory, right. you might want to think of army in a more creative context, because going around with swords is not going to be effective, and you might want to do it differently. Like you might want to set robot houses on college campuses and yeah. people do as many things as possible and do as things as possible. So is that element of Chabad coming from Chabad? Now there's more in Chabad than that. I'm saying even just taking this basic out of the yeah. And so not every, the militant part is, the militant is a particular you know, tactic and that's not always the most effective thing. That depends on the historical context. Right? If you're King David, it's one thing. But if you live in the modern age, you know, going around with a sword trying to get people to do mitzvahs is probably going to backfire you really fast. Right. No, I was more thinking of like the Kabbalists who sit in caves. Like, how can you sit in a cave when you could go out there and make something well, make Well, because the same, re the same reason why generals don't generally go out and sit in foxholes and shoot machine guns because overall it's better for them to have the whole picture and, and, and guide and persuade other people. But that's actually one of the reasons why um, you know, the analogy of an army, in fact, when we leave Egypt, we're called the army of God for a reason. Because an army has people who make things happen and people who guide the perspective. So we have this, you know, to my knowledge, they never, never went out on the street on a regular basis and asked people to put on Philip, strangely enough, because that would be the most effective way for him to get most people to put on Philip. Yeah? What do you mean that there's a different God for everyone? There's an individual something? Huh? Same ah, God the same everyone. God, it relates to everyone individually. Oh, okay, that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm No, I didn't. Like, the good thing is, like, like, do you have your own, do you, like, like some people like, yeah, I have my own God, I have my own physics, I have my own, like, no, it doesn't work. Like, there's certain things that are just like, there's one God, there's one reality, we all live in it. He just but relates God to God actually has an individual relationship with you. That's true. But his intimate relationship with you is still part of his holistic relationship with all the world, which means what you do affects me, what I do affects you. 
Wait, like, pers- like as in... Yeah. And like, do you have a personal relationship with your mother? Yeah. Does she have a personal relationship with your sister? Do you yeah. have a sister? Yeah. Okay, so does her relationship with your sister affect her relationship with you? Yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Hence the, you know, we're all one big family analogy. <laughs> all right, tomorrow we're going to learn why the 